Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. That last episode, we had a powerful discussion about the changing role of women in comics. Today, we are taking a step back in time once again to review an older issue that we missed along the way because it's not part of the regular X-Men run. We're going to be reviewing Strange Tales number 120 from May 1964. Uh, Strange Tales back then was devoted half to Doctor Strange and half to the Human Torch. We're just covering the Human Torch story today, and it is everything. <laughs> it's called The Torch Meets Iceman, which will be uh, the title of today's episode. Now, we uh, we are first going to take some time to uh, introduce the uh, author, Susan Kirtley, who I am so happy to have with us today. Susan, welcome. Uh, before we begin, let's take time to introduce ourselves. Let's go in the order of uh, uh, Heather, Arturo, and then Susan. And the question I have as you're introducing yourself today, what gender pronouns do you use? And what's the craziest thing to ever happen to you on a boat? I'm Heather, and my pronouns are she, her. And honestly, when I was little, we were on my grandparents' boat every summer, and then when I hit about 11, we realized, oh, Heather gets really seasick. That's why she doesn't have as much fun on the boat as everyone else does, because it'd be like, hey, we're going to go out on the lake. And I'd be like, okay, we're going out on the lake. And everyone else would be like, yeah, we're going out on the lake. And, but I was too little to like really know what was happening, like to be able to put words to how I was feeling. And then finally we realized, oh, no. Heather gets really seasick. And so I'm not sure that I have any crazy boat stories because most of the time I was ever on boats, I was little, like before double digits. So I know that that's really boring, but I don't have a good story for this. <laughs> and Arturo. Hi, I'm Arturo. Um, Thinking about a boat story, like Heather, I uh, I grew up around boats all the time, especially in the summers, like down in the Keys. Uh, had very fond memories of going lobstering with the family. Uh, but like one vivid memory I have was a day that we went out and we were, we basically got caught in a storm that was a lot gnarlier than anybody had anticipated. So we were hauling ass to get back to shore and I just remember the rain hitting us like bullets and it was just like really intense. Um, so yeah, respect the ocean. <laughs> and then finally, Susan. Uh, well, thank you so much for inviting me um, to speak with all of you today. Uh, my story, my craziest story on a boat is it sounds like a comic. It doesn't sound real, but uh, it was real. So uh, I was about eight years old. And again, we sh I should say that it's real, but colored by my imagination as an eight-year-old. This is how I remember it. Let's just say that. But uh, my father was in the Army Reserve. And so he would go on active duty every summer. As part of that summer service, he would travel. Uh, and sometimes he would take the family. And he took us all. We all went to a NATO conference in Denmark. So we were in Denmark. Um, and they invited the families of the officers out on a boat cruise in, you know, around Copenhagen. So it's supposed to be like a kind of a nice cruise on one of their military boats. So we went out and it was my father and myself because my sister and mother got seasick. So we go out on this boat and it is, I remember it so well because there was Captain Crister and he was the captain, this like dashing captain figure. 
And I'm like eight years old and I'm like, what? He looks like he's out of a movie. And he was like, so, uh, I don't know, dashing and a gentleman. And he's like, and now we will have our lunch. And like, it was all so dignified. But then a call comes in and Captain Christus says, we will not be having lunch because there is an emergency. And so like our boat cruises off and they rescue some fisher people who have been, their boat is in trouble. So like, now I'm like eight years old, like this is the best day ever. So we're jetting off. We, we not we, but obviously the people, um, these, you know, Danish Navy people rescue the fishermen, bring them on the boat. And then we all have lunch and go back to port. And it was like a for real lunch with like, linen napkins and cutlery and i'm like is this a is this like how everything is in denmark like everyone is like so delightfully civilized oh excuse me one moment we will now rescue the people and come back and have lunch and i'm like what it just happened so that is the wildest experience uh i have ever had on a boat and it was like the best day ever for a kid you know we go we rescue um you know these people in trouble have a nice lunch and that was and, and i just remember also, like the lunch was like all these courses and linen napkins and lots of silverware. Uh, and that that's my story on a boat. It's pretty, it seems like it should be, if only Iceman and Human Torch were there, it would have been the best day ever. I realized I did not say my pronouns. They are he and him. And while you were telling that story, I thought of my, another wildest adventure um when i was 17 on my first cruise carnival cruise shout out um but we're not going to get into that we'll keep this pg and keep it moving <laughs> oh and i my, thank you for the reminder my pronouns are she her thank you today's a pirate episode we can make it rated r <laughs> of many times i will crack that joke uh i have a lot of boat stories weirdly because i don't go on boats very much uh, my name is chad i use he him uh i didn't come out of the closet till i was in my early 30s which is tragic i know but I went on a gay cruise a few years after that, which is its own episode by itself uh, with my best friend. And I feel like the first time I ever got really drunk was on a boat. And I was like sunbaked and dehydrated and that kind of drunk. And I ended up getting like really, really emotional and having one of those like, if you care about me, then you want to know. And my, my friend was like, go to bed. And I slept for like 14 hours. <laughs> it was so much better the next day. Uh, so lots of formative experiences, but that's the first one that comes to mind when I think of boat stories. Um, so I first became aware of, uh, of your work, Susan, when, uh, I had this idea about the episode we just put out last week about uh, the changing role of women in comics. And I ordered several books over uh, over Amazon, several meaning a handful, uh, about uh, people who have written about the changing role of women in comics. Uh, and that's how you and I uh, first corresponded when I, I sent you an email from there. Susan wrote a really lovely book uh, that I'll post a, a link to on, on our social media called Typical Girls, The Rhetoric of Womanhood in Comic Strips. Uh, so, Susan, tell us a little bit about who you are and then about the book that you put out. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm Susan Kirtley, obviously. Uh, I uh, am a scholar, academic teacher, and just comics fan. Uh, and I teach at Portland State University, and I'm the director of our comic studies program. And uh, I just I say how cool it is that you have a comic studies program, first of all. That's amazing. Okay. <laughs> yes, and I'm happy to talk about that as well. I proposed it back in 2015 uh, because at Portland State we have uh, 
I felt like it was a perfect place to study comics because we have this great comics community around us. We have Oni Press, we have Dark Horse, we have Image Comics are all in Portland. Uh, so we have a great comics community. We already had uh, uh, a lot of comics classes on our curriculum and you know throughout the university. And I thought, why not bring these together and offer some sort of cohesive program? So uh, I I feel like I hit the jackpot and have you know one of the best you know the best job in the world. I get to talk about comics with interesting people, just like today. So that's that's a pretty good gig. And then I also research comics. Uh, and I guess my origin story, uh, which I've told before, but uh, when I was a little girl on the playground, I was told that girls don't read comics. Um, and so I immediately set out to read every comic I could find because I have that kind of contrary personality where if someone tells you, don't, you can't do this, I will go all in, right? And so I just was like, okay, fine, I'm going to read all the comics then. And, and then I discovered how much fun they were and how much I enjoyed them. Uh, right. I mean, and it's funny because, the, you know, there's this idea that comics are for boys. But when I read them, I'm like, these are like the soap operas, but with more punching. Right. Like all the drama and all of that. It's just like a soap with more, you know, slapping and fighting. And I was like, this is awesome. So um, so I have, you know, been reading comics since childhood and loved them and continue to love them and read all, I read all kinds of comics. Uh, and it's also part of my scholarly work because I think that we can learn a lot by reading comics because I think, you know, they, they're a reflection of our culture but they also um, shape our culture and our beliefs. And I think that there's a lot to learn. And I think we can also learn by making comics. So anyway, that's, that's a little bit about my own sort of interest in comics and where I'm coming from. And then tell us about the, the book that you made. Yes. Oh, right. Yes, the book. So um, this particular book, I was really interested in um, sort of images of the women's liberation movement and that, um, you know, second wave feminism from the 1970s and looking at it through these comic strips um, and, and how are we representing um, the evolving role of women in this particularly turbulent time. You know, I think... Uh, with the, you know, the ERA movement and things like that. And so I wanted to look at it through these mainstream newspaper comic strips. And I also research comic books, which I, I love and adore. But I think that um, there's something about these strips, these daily strips, the repetition, also the, the context, they appear in the, the mainstream newspapers, as opposed to being the audience being comic book lovers. It's, you know, everyone who reads the newspaper. So I it's wanted the, to really- It's the stuff you read with your Sunday coffee. Uh, exactly, exactly. And the reach is a different audience. And so I was really interested to think about what is revealed about the evolving role of women through these sort of mainstream newspaper strips, not all mainstream, I also looked at some independent alternative strips, but you know, sort of examining that. And so I looked at strips like, you know, like Kathy, like Sylvia, the ones in the mainstream papers, I was also interested um, in, uh, like, um, Alison Bechtel, and there's one by um, Barbara Brandon Croft um, called Where I'm Coming From. And, and it was really interesting to me um, how much has, by looking so closely at all these newspaper strips, how much has sadly stayed the same uh, in terms of, you know, sexual harassment and, you know, troubles with family leave and, and all of these issues. Um, and sometimes you could just change the date or change the name of the president and, and, and the strip would be completely relevant today. 
So it was it was a lot of fun, but also at times disheartening. Also looking at the comic strip page today versus the comic book page from, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, you know, the number of uh, creators of color, the number of female cartoonists, et cetera, it really hasn't changed much. And that was obviously uh, discouraging. Um, so it, it was a, a lot of fun, but also definitely eye-opening to, to sort of see how much has stayed the same. One of the things we pointed out in our conversation in our last podcast was the idea that it's been enormously white male writers writing comic books for white male readers. And it's kind of only in the last five or six years in comic book form where we've had comic books become a thing for girls too, right? It's uh, it's female readers, readers of color, uh, female writers, writers of color. It's, it's, it's changing the industry. But your book really made me think about how there were female creators with female characters way back when still telling these stories for female audiences in a time where it was a very male dominated industry. And Kathy is a fantastic example of that. I, uh, I have very fond memories of, you know, ack on Sunday mornings as I, as I read comic strips growing up. Uh, the, uh, the ability to, uh, to analyze that and to look at the data and to kind of stack it up in the way that you did, uh, as well as, you know, the mom figures and for better or for worse and the family circus and, uh, and I mean, you didn't cover Blondie in your strip, but that's another one that comes to mind. Uh, what were some, what was some of, the, some of the data that showed up that really surprised you as you kind of stacked it all up that way? That's a great question. And I think that uh, you mentioned Kathy and I talk about this in the book. She's much maligned in popular culture for, you know, ack, and like there's these jokes about her, which I get, you know, like I think even she would joke about that. Um, you know, the shoes, the chocolate, the, uh, you know, the dieting and the, ah, you know, however, uh, when I really was digging into these newspaper comic strips, uh, I, I talk about this in the book, there's some interesting storylines that we don't talk about. So for example, in the book, I talk about a, uh, a storyline where she's sexually assaulted by her boss, Mr. Pinkley. So uh, Mr. Pinkley comes to her house and sort of forces a kiss on her. Um, he kisses her and she punches him and knocks him out cold. Uh, then, this is, you know, this is obviously horrible. He goes back to work and he tells everyone at their job that he has spent the night with Kathy. And so this, this you know, he's maligned her character as well. Uh, and it, Kathy is much maligned, but I think it was interesting how she was dealing with real issues, you know, that people were experiencing in the workplace. It's also interesting because when you get like a Kathy anthology, a book, like, you know, lots of people buy these coffee table books full of your favorite Kathy cartoons, that is not anthologized. That is not published. You the one, the, the, the strip that, of her being sexually assaulted. Exactly. That whole storyline is, I mean, it's, it's nowhere. Erased. Yeah, it's, it's gone. It's erased. Exactly. Now, this And is, I'm just guessing yeah. that it was probably a white cis hetero male who was yes. responsible for making yes. that erase. Yes. Yes, yes. So, Mr. By P the way, I just got to say, I feel your pain because as you were saying how Kathy is maligned and literally everything you said after, I've made the exact same speech for Emma Frost for a couple of decades now. So, I feel you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, and you're absolutely right, but it's just erased. Exactly. And that's one of the challenges, I think, of doing comic scholarship is, you know, with comics, our uh, newspaper strips 
uh, especially they're just, they just disappear if they're not anthologized. And it's really hard to find the whole run of, of those different narratives. And so as I was digging into these newspaper strips, I realized that they were talking about not just chocolate and shoes, uh, and they were talking about what was happening to women in the workplace, sexual harassment, being, um, you know, discriminated against at work. Um, and her friend was campaigning for Dukakis and for the Family Medical Leave Act. And there's all of these political important moments when she was addressing real issues that women were experiencing. And you just don't, that's not how Kathy is remembered. So it, for me, and that's just one example of uh, looking deeply at these different strips um, and thinking about what, what do we remember? What is archived? What is published? And what is lost? Um, well, and we have such a long history of cartoons or comics being a platform to work various serious social issues in, but in a place where there's a lot of humor that can wash it away. I mean, Simpsons is an incredible example of this, but you don't think of Kathy first thing as doing that type of work, but it really was, and it's really incredible. Now in the first, in the intro to your book, and this is where I'm like, oh, we need to get Susan on. You mentioned your love of the X-Men. <laughs> Tell me about your relationship with the X-Men as a uh, comics fan and reader. Thank you. I do. I do adore the X-Men. And they, that was when I said I started reading comics when I was told I wasn't. That was the first comic I picked up uh, off the spinner racks at uh, a grocery store because I didn't have access to like a comic book store at the time. I was just pulling stuff off of spinner racks at the grocery store. Uh, and I pulled a, you know, an X-Men. And I... Do you, re do you remember what your first issue was? I don't. I don't remember the issue. I probably still have it. I've got boxes of them, but I can't remember the exact issue. I wish I did. But uh, there was I just fell in love with the X-Men. And I think I was sort of a nerdy outcast girl who just didn't feel like I fit in. So immediately when you read the X-Men, right, their identity is the outsider team that doesn't fit in and, and they form this this group. And so for me, there was a feeling of, you know, identifying with those characters and also that sense of longing to have a team, you know, have this sort of sense of camaraderie. Uh, and then as I, you know, continued reading, there's all that make mine marvel. The, there's like that insider language, like, oh, I'm part of this group that reads this comic. But, you know, the X-Men, as I mentioned, you know, there's a lot of delightful fighting, but there's also so much interpersonal drama and self-discovery which really resonated uh, with me. And initially I, I have a great fondness for so many characters, Nightcrawler and so forth, but I really liked um, Rogue because she had the power, that, that sort of dramatic power to suck the life out of and power out of everyone. And I really identified with that. I was like, that's just like me. I suck the power out of every room and every situation, you know, like as an angsty, you know, teenage girl. I was like, it's so me. I just can't control it. I'm sucking the life out of everything. And I'm so <laughs> misunderstood. So yeah, she was like, you know, my avatar. It's like, I feel you rogue. You're just so misunderstood, you know? Um, but all of them, I had this sort of, you know, that immediate sort of kinship connection with those stories. Who are your favorite characters? Oh, you know, it's like, how do you top answer three, that? Top three. <laughs> no, no, I can't. Uh, you know, I <laughs> So, you know, like right Rogue. now, yeah, like right now, like yeah, top Rogue. three today. Rogue, Nightcrawler, 
Well, I mean, growing up, I like Kitty Pride, but right, I'm a huge fan of the Jason Aaron run on Thor with, you know, mm. Jane Foster Thor. That's really interesting. Um, and of course, I'm into Ms. Marvel. See, no, I can't do three. I can't. <laughs> okay, I got a gotcha question for you. Since uh -oh. Rogue and Nightcrawler are two of your favorites, is Mystique a good mom? Yes or no? <laughs> uh, it's complicated, right? <laughs> yes, you know? it is. It is. <laughs> Sometimes yes, sometimes no, you know? Oh, usually no. I think yeah. this is less complicated <laughs> than, there are these than moments, most other right? things. Don't you, but there like, are moments. There are absolute like, moments. Yeah, There's these moments. It's like, yeah, for every child, it's like, oh, she's coming. Yeah, through. And there's this moment of connection. And then it's like, it's all dashed. And you're Wait, like, Susan, are you current? Do you know what has happened in X-Men in the last six months or so? No, I'm not. I mean, I, I try and keep up, but I'm, I have my, you know, my pull box, but I'm behind. So I have um, such a huge spoiler that I'm dying to tell you, but maybe I shouldn't. So you can just <laughs> discover yourself. But if you like this whole family unit, you okay. got to see what's happened recently. I do need to catch up. And then we need to talk again because it sounds like we have yes. a lot to unpack. There's a lot. Uh, are, are you read into the Krakow and Era, though. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much happening. Uh, I mean, there's just a different voice in place for theory, for feminism, for power. There's there's full issues devoted to righting the wrongs done to female characters over and over and over again. And it's, it's really, really powerful to see uh, that representation and that healing that takes place. Oftentimes, it's not healing from trauma. It's just realizing I need to speak my trauma and then do something with it. Uh, and uh, there's a storyline in Marauders featuring uh, Wilhelmina Kensington, if you know who that is. He's a, a very minor child character from the Hellfire Club. There's there's all these different examples of these types of stories being told, and it's uncomfortable but wonderful at the same time. What uh, what are your thoughts as a fan of the Krakoan era? Oh, I don't know. Like, I... I... It's that's the, the same answer I give for the other one. It's complicated, but I do. I will say, you know, in reference to that, um, re I don't know if it's a rehabilitation arc, but you know, like coming back to those characters and righting the wrongs. That's really exciting for me to see that. And I wish, I, this is my wish list. Um, I would really love to see the Carol Danvers storyline in which um, she's basically sexually assaulted and becomes pregnant and stolen and and all of that and all the, her teammates are like oh have fun see ya I really love I mean I think Chris Claremont tried to walk that back and have her you know confront her teammates but that seems to me a story that really doesn't get enough attention and that's something that it's just a sort of ugly truth from the canon that I'd like to see them talk about now that now that these kinds of storylines are coming out or you know what I mean where they're trying to redress some of these wrongs that one I just feel like it hasn't it hasn't I'm not let, letting it go I'm like we need to talk about it. especially because Carol Danvers as Captain Marvel has gone on to such um you know importance in popular culture um I think to erase that part of the history is a lost opportunity to talk about you know this is an, this is an X-Men podcast, and this is, I think, the third episode out of five where we brought up that same storyline because we keep talking about these problematic portrayals. Now, yeah. Kurt, Kurt Busey did tackle that storyline in Avengers Volume 3. I'd have to get the specific numbers, but he brings the character the Scarlet Centurion back. And there is an issue, it's been a long time since I've read it, where, where Carol Danvers 
uh, does acknowledge what has happened. Um, but because her memories were taken by Rogue, mm -hmm. there's kind of that absence of the trauma, yeah. which was kind of a way to let her move on in a weird way. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a very, very uncomfortable story. Well, so, and it begs the question, is Kurt Busiek, and no offense to him, but is he the right voice to redress that issue, right? Like, it's, it's the type of thing that it may be better left alone and forgotten mm -hmm. rather than mishandled further and messed. So it's something that I think, like, there's a story for sure to be told and there's wrongs to be righted, but it would require the right touch. That's a good point. You want to do it mindfully. You want to do it yeah. thoughtfully and appropriately. You yeah, don't want to make I, the situation worse. It's already bad. Yeah, I think that's one of the coolest things about the Krakone era, aside from, and I totally agree with you, the 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 redemption and the rehabilitative process, which is very flawed, right? Like there's, there's you know, the whole, and it, we're, we're getting into all that, but just the promise of being able to be your best self and like seeing all the different avenues and stories that, that are coming of that and the people that embrace it and the people that, you know, are hesitant, et cetera. It's just, it's really exciting. But the other side that's so cool is it feels like Jonathan Hickman started something and brought a group together. And even now, as he's like stepped back or, or away from the property, it's just growing further and they're hiring more diverse talent and letting people tell other stories. And like, you know, we win some and we lose some, some books that were canceled really should have never been canceled. And I miss some of those creators, but the future looks bright. And it's nice to see that it's not just business as usual. They're, they're giving other, you know, other voices a, a chance. Mm -hmm. Susan, do you teach X-Men in your curriculum, curriculum at all? I teach um, issues, you know, um, here and there, um, or um, students bring them in. It depends on the class that I'm teaching. Um, I teach a lot of comics theory and we sort of dabble in different things. Um, so, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll bring in an issue or something like that in terms of history. Uh, we had Douglas Walk was teaching for us. So he was doing our history class and I can't imagine a better person to do history with all of the marvel um knowledge that he has but i will include them you know i try and include some uh i like to do some archive editions some old stuff as well as more recent things um i think the last superhero sort of it's not really a book but collection i taught was ms marvel the um con you know the g willow wilson Ooh. run um, which in a college class is really, you know, a lot of fun because we get to talk about intersectional identities, we get to talk about diversity, we get to talk about um, the teen superhero, which is, you know, uh, obviously a, a thing. What does it mean to be a teenager? And so it's that one um, teaches really well because it gives us lots and lots uh, to talk about. And I have to, I have to shamelessly plug, you said G. Willow Wilson. Mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't read The Dreaming, recent miniseries that just wrapped up, absolutely incredible, incredible story. If you're a fan of, of classic Neil Gaiman Sandman, it's like revisiting that, but in a very fresh, very new way. And G. Willow Wilson is just incredible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Wilson is outstanding. It's, it's funny you mention that because I think I started with the X-Men. Those were sort of my first comics. Then I read a lot of Marvel. And then I sort of started reading Sandman. And, you know, like, I was like, what? There's this whole other kind of comic. So I was reading Sandman. 
And then I discovered, um, you know, like uh, Concrete and Grendel. And then I was like, by that point, I was like, oh, I'm going to the comic book shops and discovering all the different kinds of stories that we can tell. Um, but I still read all of them. You know, I, I still read the superheroes and the, um, you know, anything. I, I read it all. The nonfiction comics. There's so That's one thing, you know, when I was growing up and reading the X-Men, I, I loved and continue to love them. But it's exciting to me, as you were saying, there, there are so many different types of stories now um, told by different types of, you know, all kinds of creators and the diversity in storytelling. Um, I think I was in a judge for the Eisner Awards a few, it was a while ago, but I remember in the short story category, I think one of the nominees was like a kind of traditional Batman story, but another story was like um, by a woman who published it in an online magazine and it was about breastfeeding. And I was like, how great is it that we have, you know, all these different stories published in different ways from different creators. Um, and you think about the Raina Telgemeier phenomenon and how so many um, young girls are reading comics now and and how they're such a part of libraries and schools. And it's really exciting, I think, um, that we have all these stories available to us. You mentioned uh, your love of the soap opera in comics earlier. Could you pick your favorite soap opera storyline from the X-Men of all time? It's sort of a cliche, but like the whole rogue gambit you know, will they ever be together? You know, that was like a you know, a big deal for me as a, you know, a teenager. We um, love each other, but we can't touch each other. Exactly. We love each other, but we can't be together. We can't touch each other. And then there was like the whole, you know, alternate history or alternate universe where she ends up with Magneto. And so that was a um, one that I can remember. Um, and then, um, the virus, that was another one. What was I, legacy virus. The legacy virus. That was a very dramatic and interesting to me and brought up all kinds of issues, um, you know, in terms of illness and prejudice and so much. So that was another great story and another sort of great soap opera element. Um, but as you say, with all of these soap opera narratives, they are also bringing up social issues, you know? Um, especially with the outsiders about prejudice and, and uh, you know, who is inside and who is outside the mainstream and who is acceptable and so forth. So those are some of them, but there's so many good ones, yeah. you know? I, I love I love when Gambit and Rogue storyline uh, explored the idea of throuples, and that was in the form of Joseph, the younger, hotter Magneto, <laughs> and it was all subtext. But the tension was so real, and <laughs> I still ship it. I think we should resurrect Joseph specifically for this. Ah, yeah, that's 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 a good idea. They should listen to you, and yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I think Heather would much rather be in their trouble. I would not say no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm tempted to ask questions about queer theory, but today's comic book that we're going to be covering has a lot of queer theory in it unintentionally. Uh, Susan, you mentioned you mentioned uh, uh, comics are social justice platforms uh, or, or certainly conversation starters. And this issue that we're going to review in a minute is that unintentionally. There's a lot of homoerotic context that we'll explore. But when it comes to when it comes to um, uh, feminism storylines, uh, Chris Claremont's work uh, after he took over the X-Men, 
we started seeing kind of, I don't, I don't know if for the first time is allowed, but certainly in a big mainstream book, we started seeing female characters rise to super powerful places, not as background characters of the team, but almost as the prominent members of the team with Rogue and with Storm and with Jean Grey, Phoenix, and with Psylocke and Dazzler and so many other characters. Uh, who did, Shadowcat, of course, or Kitty Pride is, is another huge favorite, Jubilee. Who did you uh, love most growing up besides Rogue? Who stood out to you as an example of, of uh, a strong, powerful woman? You know, a lot of those characters you just mentioned, and I really got into comics during the Chris Claremont era, and he really drew me in with those characters, and I'm a huge fan of his, and uh, at the time, I didn't know, I didn't really pay attention that this is the Chris Claremont era, you know, I was just like, oh my gosh, they're amazing, uh, but I I was very influenced and excited by Psylocke, um, by um, Kitty Pride, um, by Rogue, by Storm, by um, the camaraderie. I was never a Jean Grey fan um, until she became Dark Phoenix. And then she became interesting to me, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, once she turned evil, I was like, oh, there's something there that wasn't there. You know, like something interesting is happening now. Uh, but um, I, then she became interesting because she was all powerful. But I, I really liked, you know, I, I would agree that um, Chris, Chris Claremont was really um, an influential writer for me um, as I as I was a reader. I think also I have to say that sometimes I would, um, as I was reading, sort of read things uh, in a contrary way in terms of, I don't know, sometimes I would uh, create my own narratives. Like, um, and we'll talk about this in terms of The Torch Meets Iceman, but I guess I was reading it. I was sort of creating this whole storyline for Doris. And I think as a, you know, like as, as I was reading comics as a young person, I definitely identified with these characters, these, you know, like Storm and um, Psylocke and Rogue and Kitty Pride. They kind of were these aspirational figures like, wow, look what they can do. But I would sometimes also read like old romance comics and oh, it's, like thinking about I had this um, love hate relationship with Betty and Veronica. Um, in my own mind, I was like, you guys should just leave Archie and be together, right? Like this, you know? And so like, I kind of created a counter narrative in my own mind, um, uh, reading into it, like in, sometimes they would have these great issues where they were working together against Archie and and coming out as friends, you know, like coming together as friends. And I was like, okay, that's that's how it should be. So sometimes I was reading into it what I wanted to be there. Or maybe it was there too. It's I mean, a, did, yeah, it's like an early version of fan fiction. We want to see, yeah. uh, we want to see stories, and we want to tell these stories from from the side, which is a a brilliant way to do things. Uh, so, for those of you listening, pick up uh, pick up Susan's book, Typical Girls, and I know you have other books, Susan. We'll have you talk about uh, some of the other work you're doing. Uh, Typical Girls is the only one I've read, but it taught me a lot, and it really kind of arrested my mind and made me think about the stuff I read growing up differently than I ever have before. And analyzing Alison Bechtel's work, et cetera, and made me want to go look at other strips that I haven't seen. Um, so really incredible work. I would love to sit in on one of your classes and see the amazing work you're doing, not just with you, but with the other uh, professors in your program. It sounds like a really cool place to be on a regular basis. Um, you mentioned Dory Evans or Doris Evans, who's going to appear in this issue. I have a love of obscure Marvel characters. And for many, many years, I, well, I used to work on the Marvel handbooks. 
But I also uh, wrote for a website called The Appendix, uh, which a lot of people are familiar with, which covers the history of obscure characters. So I just posted in the chat and I'll put this up online later. I actually wrote a whole profile of the history of Doris Evans. Uh, so feel free to look at that later on. It's uh, She's a character who's not been around a lot, but she has more history than people think. Um, uh, Can I pitch you guys a story real quick? Please. I want this plot line. Doris, Zelda, Bobby's girlfriend, kind of from this era. Opal Tanaka. Maybe we bring back Candy Southern. Mojo produces this. It's the real ex-girlfriends of Krakoa. Get Trish Tilby in there. Vera, like, Cantor, literally, Vera Cantor has to be there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's somewhere between like the Real Housewives and The View. God help us. And <laughs> it's produced by Mojo. And it's a whole plot line. Marvel, call me. We can bring we can bring Lee Forrester in. Ah, oh, Lee Forrester. <laughs> Lee Forrester will show up in like episode six, like the surprise of the season, like gag. Anyways, delicious. Um, uh, Susan, thank you for telling us about your work. Uh, with that, I think we're going to transition into reviewing uh, Strange Tales number one twenty together, uh, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit more as we go, obviously, and and toward the end. Now, Strange Tales 120, as I, as I mentioned before, was uh, published in May of 1964. Uh, it's uh, an anthology series that ran for a long time, dating back to the 50s. But Human Torch was in it as one of the featured characters for a long time, as well as Doctor Strange. For the readers at home, we are only covering the Human Torch story for today. Now, Fantastic Four has been around for a little while. We have this kind of plot line where Mr. Fantastic and his girlfriend, Sue Storm, and his best friend, Ben Grimm, and then Sue's Storm, little brother, Johnny, they take a rocket up into space. This is before we've landed on the moon as Americans, and they're trying to rush to get to the moon, but they're bombarded by cosmic rays, and they come back to Earth with superpowers, and now they're these world-famous heroes. Now, Johnny is the teenager. He's blonde, blue-eyed. He likes to work on cars. He's the cool kid who gets all the girls, and, and he has this whole kind of teenage rebel story. It's very almost like uh, his old his old stuff is very like a uh, happy days if you watch that old show there's kind of like a, a fawn's energy he's, he's like richie cunningham or uh there's a there's a lot of kind of energy about this in his old stories he fights ridiculous villains but uh then the x-men came along and they're the outsiders uh, the fantastic four belongs the x-men are the the outcasts the people who have to stay in hiding they go to a special school nobody can know who they are uh and this is one of iceman's very first appearances if you guys remember, he's all lumpy and snowy in his in the beginning. It's not until X-Men number eight where he gets his more uh, uh, sheer ice form. In this issue, he's still kind of lumpy and snowy. My prediction is this issue takes place right around X-Men number six. It's after the X-Men have faced the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants for the first time. And, uh, and we get to see come, some uh, crazy stories. Apparently, fans were writing in and telling Stan Lee, we need the Human Torch and Iceman to meet, which as a 60s teen, that would make sense, right? You want the fire guy and the ice guy to get together. Uh, so as we're starting today, uh, we we look at the cover. It says Strange Tales. It had to happen. The Human Torch meets the Iceman, the teenage masters of heat and cold fighting side by side for the very first time. Uh, tell me your thoughts on this really wacky Jack Kirby cover uh, <laughs> as, we, as, we, uh, as we start the issue. What did you think about this cover? I feel like Johnny is real close to other people to be having that kind of trail of fire. Like, I feel like that's almost more dangerous than all the guns that are being pointed at them. And there are a lot of guns. Yeah, there's so many guns. <laughs> I, I, 
I got to say, I, there, I I knew this wasn't going to be like some deep, meaningful issue, but this is the kind of thing that I would have absolutely loved as a kid. And I've realized like looking back at like my origin story and how I, I got into comics, et cetera, it really all kind of started with like basically serialized, you know, commercials selling toys from He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, like just specifically those three you could look at it and say, oh yeah, this is a commercial, basically a 30 minute commercial telling you to go buy this truck that turns into a robot. But the coolest thing about these fictions is that it becomes a vehicle to tell these bigger stories. And you have these different characters and archetypes and tropes. And I don't know, uh, they were then moving product here, back here. This is just like moving the idea. It's almost like we've gone back to this, moving the idea of these characters right making giving them more mythos or whatever so yeah if you're a fan of the fantastic four and you know ice can exist of course you want to see these two mix and you want to see them you know clash and you want to see them try to work things out and given you know the last two decades of uh of, of publication history it's impossible to revisit this stuff without the context of queer bobby and without the context of subtextually bisexual Johnny Storm and like it's the tension is there you know even if it wasn't intentional it's uh it's it just it's jumps off the page in this as soon as they hear about each other there's like like rivalry yeah. human torch is like a frozen human torch fuck that <laughs> well and talk about a soap opera it's like oh i don't like this guy because they're calling him you know like me but i'm better and i'm you know there's this all this interpersonal self-confidence and self-worth and this in drama about the competition and so much of the tension is inspired by these you know the tension between the characters i mean captain barracuda is really kind of an afterthought i mean i'm using afterthought but you know what i mean like the drama the is is these two characters meeting and figuring out who they are and who they are to each other and you know that's it's such a soap opera uh, but it's and it's evidence on the cover that this is going to be amusing right i mean you know you've got captain barracuda there's way more guns i mean it's like chaos they would hurt themselves like there's <laughs> just chaos on the cover they're all pointing them randomly they are not well organized pirates, and and the and our two heroes also, as you point out, they seem to be injuring bystanders as well. It's just completely delightfully absurd. So let's have Heather let's have Heather take us through the first four pages of the story, and then let's take time to comment on what's happening because I I actually feel like there's a lot to talk about here, despite the fact that there's not a lot that happens in this issue. So, first of all, we have the Fantastic Four all at their headquarters in apparently the present. <laughs> and I just have to comment on Sue Storm's fucking hair. I know. <laughs> that is a hair helmet if I ever did see one. Keep in mind, <laughs> at the time she was technically married to an astronaut. So it, you know, the math they're, math. They're not married yet. Oh, okay. Dating an astronaut. I mean, that's definitely <laughs> uh, I'm dating an astronaut kind of hair for the time. Yes. Um, and so Johnny's reading a newspaper about the X-Men because they've been getting lots of publicity and the papers are calling their youngest member Iceman, a frozen version of the Human Torch. And, you know, that just will not stand. And I love how this whole time, like, Reed and Sue and Johnny are having this conversation and the things back there. And he's like, 
how am I supposed to test this equipment? Like, I have to do all the work and stuff like that. And it was just like, mm, poor, poor Ben. <laughs> if I had to choose one character that's my all-time Marvel favorite, it's the thing. <laughs> um, and so there, and so Johnny's like, well, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that walking frozen custard. And he's like, I've got a date, so I'm going to leave. And then we go to the X-Men's headquarters where Angel is asking Jean out on a date. And I actually commented on this panel to my partner while I was reading it today. Whenever um, Iceman's talking to Professor X, he goes, gosh, Professor X, whenever I get up the nerve to ask Jean for a date, the Angel or Cyclops or somebody beats me to it. And I'm like, honey, you don't want to ask out Jean Grey. Like, <laughs> you're queer as hell. It's fine. <laughs> And also, Cyclops is not asking Gene out anytime soon. Let's <laughs> it's really, by, by the time I've overcome my queer anxiety to ask her, somebody's already beat me to it. Exactly. Really, it's really like, oh, if on. I say, oh, they beat me to it, then people aren't going to know. Wait, uh, I just want to say, sorry to interrupt. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm probably breaking the format. We were talking about uh, whether Iceman's in his icy form or his snowy form. I love that in this panel, it literally looks like he is mimicking Professor X, only made out of snow. <laughs> and I like to think that he was doing it as a smartass. So sorry, <laughs> carry on, carry on. And so Professor X is like, hey, go to New York and see the sights. And he finds this pamphlet um, for See New York by Gotham Boatline Daily Cruises. And apparently a lot of swinging teens are on those cruises. Um, so he defrosts and he's like, oh, it's cold without all the snow on me. <laughs> so he goes to get on the cruise and he misses the boat. But if Bobby Drake can't catch it, maybe Iceman can. So he turns into Iceman and gives himself an ice path and slides like the biggest dork on the planet I ever did see. Um <laughs> It looks like he's sitting in a chair with his arms straight out and he's just going along his little ice path. And I don't feel like that's the best way to do it, but I don't know. And then we have his frozen vaulting pole because Iceman does love his big poles. Um, I made a comment about that to my partner as well. <laughs> and so he gets on the boat and there's a zillion chicks just as he hoped. Wink, wink, he did not. But they've all got dates because apparently this is a hot date spot. And then he sees Doris and he's like, oh, she's all alone. And so he goes over to talk to her and she's like, no, I'm not alone. I'm here with the Human Torch. And so the Human Torch comes up and he's like, hey, why are you talking to my girl? And she's like, no, he wasn't being fresh. He just thought I was alone. And so Iceman gets a little bit petty because the Human Torch is here with this girl. He thought he was, was pretty apparently. And he freezes their sodas. And so Human Torch has to thaw them out. But then there's some thugs right there. And so, so let's pause here for just a minute. I, I want to start really quickly with the comparison of the Fantastic Four to the X-Men. We have this public popular family who are well accepted for being freaks and geeks, right? Like they've got crazy superpowers. One man is literally made out of orange rock and he regularly destroys property. 
but the family are billionaires or whatever. So they're like widely accepted. uh, Johnny's burning stuff all the time, but they're still widely accepted. And Johnny sees in the newspaper, here is this up and comer who is trying to take my place and I'm the popular kid. And then we go back to Iceman feeling very lonely and isolated at the school. Just the juxtaposition between those two is really fascinating. Susan, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's really an interesting moment in the, you know, in the history to look at these different teams and think about, um, you know, there's this commentary where they're saying, oh, well, they say the X-Men are mutants. They were born with their powers. You know, they were born this way as opposed to um, acquiring the powers accidentally. So it seems like the fact that the Fantastic Four in acquiring these powers um, through this mission are are being are, are acceptable accepted whereas the x-men who are mutants and inherently born in a certain way are less acceptable so i, I find that you know an interesting storyline and a you know a contrast between the characters and and as a fan of the thing as well i felt that poignant moment where, where i was like oh give him a storyline like does he always have to be the comic relief there in the background but in any case um, yeah, it's an interesting, this contrast and the conflict and competition that they're setting up uh, between the teams, the, the quote unquote popular team um, and the and these, you know, outcasts. The uh, the idea or the next thing that really stands out to me is uh, Bobby kind of wanting an opportunity to prove that he's straight. He's noticing the only girl everyone else is already asking out the same girl and I can't prove that I'm straight. Meanwhile, Professor X, who has to know Bobby's gay, it has to, he's a telepath. He has to see it. And he just says, go, you know, go off in the city. Go, go hit a bathhouse somewhere, Bobby. It's gonna be fine. <laughs> <laughs> the the dynamics here. We we only get that a is, that's the exactly that is exactly the subtext there. Bobby did not pick up on the cues. Professor X was literally telling him, hey kid, head out to the city, go to Times Square, go have fun. Here's a brochure telling you to go cruising along the pier, but you missed the damn clue and you ended up on this damn boat with all the straights. And we have a long history of queer people having to leave the people they know and go to places where they are unfamiliar in order to be queer. Because if people don't know me, I can be gay. But if they do know me, then I can't. Uh, But I think Bobby at this stage in his development is not in a place where he accepts that he's queer at all. The first thing he does when he gets on the boat is look for girls, right? Oh, now here's the chance. And that's the way I was for a long time. Even though I was looking at the boys, I was thinking that I should be looking at the girls. And so I believed that I was straight and broken as opposed to gay and, and hiding, right? Like I didn't think of it as hiding back then. Uh, so there's a little bit of a heartbreaking moment as he gets on the ship and immediately goes for the girl standing there. But then, oh, here comes the handsome human torture on the corner. And Bobby definitely notices Johnny. <laughs> I also, I have to comment on there's a moment on page three um, where he is changing from his Iceman snowman form so um, and melting um, into his human form. And I think it's interesting, these ideas of you know, um, being able to hide in this Iceman form and then revealing his human form and not being comfortable in it. And also in terms of the gaze, it's kind of, he's, you know, they, the, there's this three panels in succession where you have him as this, he does look like a snowman, kind of a slender snowman, but a snowman, not the ice form that he's come to occupy. And then there's a, you know, an, an, another panel where he's half and half. And then in the third panel, he's sort of posing in this, you know, blue, 
briefs, you know, and he says, you know, so long, Iceman. Hello, Bobby Drake. Burr, it's chilly without my icy coating. And there's almost this sort of pinup gaze, right, um, on mm -hmm. his, his figure. And yet he's also, um, it seems he's sort of uncomfortable in his human form. And, and I just think it's interesting, this transition between being able to hide in this ice form. Also, many images of him as a snowman with a top hat, with a delightful hat. I don't Thank know. you. Thank it's you. Just... <laughs> I've been sitting here biting, waiting for right? biting my time. How yes, absolutely really? love it. I absolutely know. love it. He like does this... this great Olympic feat that was like yeah. skiing into pole vaulting to get onto the boat. Yeah. And fully ice manned out. His clothes is like in a little bundle in his hand. Mm -hmm. He's wearing the hat. It's fantastic. The hat. It's such a fashion moment, right? Like <laughs> he's like. I can take all my clothes off, but the hat, it has to say because it's part of the outfit or something. I don't know. I just find that really delightful. And you've also pointed out, Heather, that panel where he's sliding on this ice that he's created and he's doing it in the most awkward pose possible. He, he doesn't apparently have any thumbs if he also in that actual frame. Um, they're all kind of fingers. It's very awkward and humorous. And he says, not a wave. bad squat, yeah. though. Not a bad squat. If this was, you know, <laughs> minus the blur lines behind him, it's it's a decent squat. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely, I mean, as exercise, his quads are burning, I'm sure. Uh, but yes, so many delightful moments um, just in that that scene to think about the undressing and and dressing, you know, and that sort of nakedness. It's It's really interesting what's going on there. What do you guys, uh, Heather and Susan specifically, what do you guys think of Dory's fashion? Mm. I think it's cute. She pulls it off. I have to agree. I mean, like the little striped, mm -hmm. um, she has a, uh, you know, a dress with an, uh, you know, a long sleeve shirt underneath. And I, I was, you know, envying her little striped shirt and the gloves. Um, it was great fashion. Obviously, uh, her figure is sort of that Barbie figure, which is not anatomically possible. And it was a tiny waist and large chest, but the actual outfit, she's wearing flats. She has, um, I, I, I agree. I, I thought she was, I thought she was pulling it off. I feel like she comes out of this, the most dignified character of all, right? Like, well, thanks to the white gloves. It was the white gloves for me that completely, <laughs> as yeah. soon as I saw her, I'm like, who is she? I live, I stand <laughs> like right? the white gloves all day long right and there's, on, a, yeah, on and, a boat yeah that's kind of brazen that's like oh look i'm this dainty that i can wear yeah, white i can gloves. wear white gloves and, and i'll still not look yeah. a mess and the moment where um you know the sodas get frozen it's like you know he's all flustered the human torch like what happened what's going on and she's like come on idiot just unfreeze <laughs> it you are the human torch right like she's like really He's all flustered by this somehow. Like, what, what, what am I going to do? Uh, melt them. So I feel like she really comes out of this episode. Um, the strongest character, the most dignified in this whole encounter. I, I need to, I need to just, and I'm sorry, I know we're not, you know, doing, uh, doing a play here, but I do want to do a dramatic reading of just one panel uh, when Bobby's hitting on Doris and I haven't prepared this. So, but, and Doris informs him. I happen to be here with a date and just between us, there's not a teenager anywhere. Who's his match. That's a pun son. <laughs> <laughs> and bitch, I live that moment was when like, she needs her own series. 
she's going to be the anchor of my whole mojo produced television show right Dor- Dory, a- that's a pun son yeah Dory in the- character. yeah Dory yeah. in the fantastic four and and in the human torch comic she hasn't been around a lot in the last 50 years frankly but She's always very like, like uh, she'll be on a date with Johnny and he has to run off to fight crime. And she's like, oh my God, you're going off to fight crime again and leaving me at this party by myself. Like, fine. Like, she's always very put out by it rather than like trying to pine for his attention. She's like, I'm <laughs> mad at you now. I will forgive you when I choose. And I love her through, through all the 60s comics. She's amazing. Um, what do you guys think? Uh, well, actually, Susan, let me have you take the next group of pages. Tell us what happens and then I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between the Human Torch and Iceman specifically in this issue. There's something very interesting uh, dynamic-wise between them. Sure, yeah. I, I think, you know, uh, here we go. Um, Iceman is feeling, you know, kind of hurt, rejected. So he he's, he storms off and, and he sees there's these hoodlums who are unpacking large guns, who have boarded the ship. They're unpacking large guns. And then he says, oh, I'll just ignore them, right? What? what, you're going to ignore the hoodlums with large weapons? But he says, you know, Professor X wouldn't want me to be getting into a fight on my day off. Now, this logic is, you know, we have to let it go. Um, But they, you know, these um, pirates have boarded a ship in New York. We're yeah, just putting it out there. Um, They're boarding the ship. Captain Barracuda um, comes onto the ship and demands that all the passengers, you know, move against the, what is it? Line every up, everybody up against the rail, move you swabs. So he, all the passengers moving against the um, railings because it's piracy right here on the Hudson River, like right here in River City. Um, and they're lining these um, passengers up, but, um, you know, the human torch is, is not gonna have any of it and melts one of the guns. He um, quickly um, tries to get Doris to safety, kind of secretes her in a room there. Uh, and then, you know, he and Iceman in parallel decide that they're going to um, fight these pirates who have boarded the ship and taken the passengers captive. Uh, and Iceman says, um, you know, looks like this trip isn't going to be as still as I feared. After all, if that chick was impressed by the torch, just wait till she sees Iceman in action. So we're setting up these, you know, dueling characters. Um, and as they do so, um, you know, Iceman and and uh, Human Torch are taking on Captain Barracuda, the infamous embarrassing Captain Barracuda. Um, and as they are trying to fight with the pirates, pirate and his team, they kind of keep, as you're pointing out, they're setting up this tension between the character. Um, whereas, you know, Iceman is saying he's going to try and set up a human, uh, set up an ice shield so the bullets won't bother us. But Human Torch says, well, they don't bother me. And they kind of are working at cross purposes at this point. And, it, and, and Captain Barracuda comes up with the brilliant idea of pointing a fire hose um, at Iceman, and and subsequently he he freezes him into a block of ice, and they respond, Barracuda, you're a genius. Something you don't hear very often about that particular um, character. So it's setting up this this tension between the two characters. Well, and, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating how clumsy Bobby is with his powers here. And in just a couple pages, he's goddamn impressive with his powers. But he's uh, he's distracted by the handsome human torch, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but keep going, Susan. No, no, I think that's, I mean, I you know, they're just, 
um, stuck in this, you know, competing. They're, you know, they're trying to, they're competing and they're sort of awkwardly, you know, he's melting him, uh, you know, Human Torch is melting Iceman as they fight these pirates and it is not going well. And as you say, um, it, it, it's awkward how clumsy they are with their powers and, and it's embarrassing that these ploys by the pirates are actually working, you know, like really that stopped them. Um, the fire hose, and then they, you know, grab this canvas, um, which, you know, they're going to have him burn, et cetera. And so initially their, their um, collaboration, their team up is not very successful initially, I'll say. Yeah, they're, uh, they're very much rivals, uh, obviously. Well, uh, Arturo and Heather, thoughts on kind of pages five through eight? I really was just laughing the entire time at Barracuda because what what the fuck? <laughs> my my headcanon is that his full name is like Bernard Cuda. So he's the <laughs> captain. And so it's like his whole shtick. You know, I, I like very subtle villains like Skeletor and you know uh cobra commander so yes his name's barracuda i would expect a more barracuda motif going on he's just literally just a uh a cutout pirate but he uh he is uh, in my theory we don't know a lot about his backstory uh he is a closeted homosexual who's very unhappy with his life and he is obsessed with Peter Pan and Neverland and wants to recreate some adventures. So he surrounds himself with a crew of men who have to do as he says. He gets to dress Super up toxic. all fancy. Toxic employer. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll take uh, just a brief pause into continuity. For those that want to look up Captain Barracuda, he is not a common ex uh, villain, particularly for the X-Men. But uh, he shows up in this issue. This is his first appearance. We next see him in 1969 in Submariner number 10 and 11. Then in 1978 in The Incredible Hulk number 219 and 220. We see him in Fantastic Four number 219 in 1980. And then he disappears for 30 years and comes back in uh, an issue of Vengeance of the Moon Knight number 10 in 2010. He's in A Plus X, which is an Avengers X-Men anthology in 2013, number eight. And then lastly, he's most recently in Iron Man uh, 2020, Volume 2, Number 2, in uh, the year 2020. So he's been around a little bit. He gets a couple storylines where he'll get like a crazy powerful weapon and try to do something with it. But mostly it's him just trying to be a pirate and getting his ass kicked over and over again. That's kind of, that's kind of his thing. He's no superpowers. He just is kind of a terrible, forgettable villain. Uh, did you guys like him as a villain in this story? Is he an effective villain? Well, isn't he infamous for being the the for trying to use a periscope with the eye with the eye patch during the Hulk? I think I think during that Hulk issue, um, he he tries to use a periscope, but he's looking through the periscope with the eye with the eye patch. So I think that is what I know him from, just being like this absurd villain. I, mean, I will find I will find the yeah. panel. He does get a hold of the Proteus horn at some point, which is an undersea horn that can summon like sea monsters and like he can make them attack the city. So he's like obsessed with the Proteus horn a little bit. And he's like, I'm all powerful now. And then they take the horn away. And of course, you know, <laughs> he's like so campy, though. In some ways it works with this one. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think he's a good villain for this particular comic because everything in it is just so absurd. See, for, he works <laughs> for, for me, like what I think about with him is 
those few years when he was like off the radar and he was producing uh bait bus videos and notoriously just <laughs> horrible employer took advantage of those poor kids and you know so it, it was interesting for me to revisit him before that happened and kind of seeing like what led to him being such a horrible person so yeah. uh his Not spreading the truth of captain barracuda here his only fans never took off and he had to go back to villainy again and again <laughs> horrible what fans. do you do so I still want to talk about the Iceman Torch connection, but actually, uh, Arturo, now's a good time. Close out the issue for us. Tell us what happens, how things resolve, and then let's talk about this relationship just a little bit. So, you know, earlier I was saying how these stories were were just kind of pushing the the concept of these characters, right? And I just think I just think it's interesting, like for context, to realize like when these were being printed and read and and created, you know special effects were pretty limited they, they didn't have all these animated series it was just like different right so for a kid reading this the imagination you know and that that to me was always the thing it was like i always enjoyed i i, I really was uh it was resonating what you were saying earlier susan of you know immersing yourself and and consuming these stories and then twisting it and making it your own thing right so this, like the next few pages, is basically feats, feats of their superpowers. It's, you know, uh, Human Torch doing this like spinning wheel of fire and uh, uh, Iceman making a, a shield. And, you know, there's there's a, a level of almost like kind of basic science that you're showing a kid that's reading this. Like, oh, these are the different ways that these powers can so I, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is, you know, so you get Iceman throwing uh, or bowling huge balls of, you know, snowballs, like, like bowling pins, and he's freezing people to, you know, to, to the deck. Uh, he chucks a, you know, ice projectile that's shaped kind of like a tiny missile or maybe a, a big dart. I don't know. Your mileage may vary. Um yeah, and it's just, you know, them basically saving the day. Um, well, before that, we have to note, the Human Torch screwed up. He tries to escape a trap and sets the ship on fire, and all the people are like, oh, no. Uh, Iceman really is, like, the hero of this issue. He has to clean up the Torch's mess. Uh, I just, well, well I, I will say the Torch was distracted. Here mm -hmm. I am. Look at me coming here to defend Johnny Storm. What the hell is going on? Um, <laughs> they tried wrapping him in a big piece of cloth, and Johnny points out, or, or one of the pirates points out, but it's not asbestos. He'll burn right through it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just yeah, another, like, artifact of the time. Like, if you went and grabbed the tarp, in, in this year, there's like a, you know, four and five chance that it is made of asbestos, but in this situation, it wasn't. So, you know, I think that threw, that threw Johnny a little bit. Uh, when Barracuda takes Doris captive, that's when everything is, you know, now there's a girl to save. What are they going to do? How does Iceman save the day, Arturo? Uh, well, as I was saying, with his big snowballs, that I think uh, is how the fire gets extinguished. Um, Human Torch redeems himself by melting, uh, you know, the goons' weapons. Um, and Iceman, I think, freezes the Hudson. Yeah, he like literally creates like a little mini iceberg under the ship and like hoists it up in the air, which is frankly 
in the early X-Men comics, everything we've been reviewing, this is the coolest thing we've seen him do with his powers. This is like first hint that he's like a mega level mutant. He does something. He lifts the whole ship out of the water on a little iceberg. It's really, it's really fucking cool. Actually. I think it's, uh, I think it's really amazing. And then he just kind of skirts away. <laughs> he puts his hat back on. Puts his hat back on. Yes. No, this was, isn't this it sort is of the... poignant? He's little, he's got his clothes and his, you know, and he's all rolled up and he's like in the snowman form, but with the hat on. And he's sort of making these little icebergs, little ice, you know, flows to get him back to the city. And it, for me, that was like kind of sad, kind of poignant because he doesn't really, he saves the day by creating that super cool iceberg sitch. Um, but he doesn't really make the human connection, you know, it's like he just kind of goes away by himself. And it's, I don't know, I felt sad for him, you know. And his new crush is flying away with his delightful girlfriend who you yes. want to hate, but you're like, oh, but she's so fierce. Like, <laughs> I hate her so much, but she's so fierce. And I love that Johnny Storm is uh, is flying all lit up, completely on fire, except the one arm is fleshy and, and holding on to her. So I appreciate that attention to detail. And then just... Bobby Drake, as queer as he want to be, just like walking around, walking away despondently with his little sad hat. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. So we've referenced this on the podcast before, but there's a story told where Dokken, the son of Wolverine, who is bisexual, uh, uses his pheromone powers to release emotion from people that's already there right? Like people already have to have the feelings, but he helps them come to the surface. And it's hinted that he and the human torch have a tryst. And we've interviewed Leah Williams uh, on the podcast who wrote Dawkins. And she's like, oh yeah, I didn't write that story, but it absolutely happened. Dawkins and Johnny Storm fucked. So that's, the only, <laughs> that's the only thing we could ever say. We know that Johnny might be at least a little gay, but in this issue, it, there seems to be a little bit of like Iceman and Human Torch have kind of a crush on each other, but don't know what to do with it. Did anyone else get that energy? Oh, 100%. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I was texting you before. I was like, gay, like <laughs> the like there's just this thing that you want them to interact, right? And yeah, the queer tension just could not be more there. It's kind of like why I love, you know, the idea of Bobby and Pyro, right? Like it just, you know, it seems a little obvious, but it's it's kind of great. Um yeah. And, you know, if anybody here is familiar with my online presence, you know, I have a lot of action figures and uh, I have Iceman and Human Torch right behind me. You guys can't see this because you're listening to the podcast, <laughs> but uh, it started off and they were kind of hugging. And as we have been recording, um, you'll be happy to know that Bobby has mounted Johnny Storm <laughs> and they're having a wonderful, wonderful day. <laughs> which, is, which is such a nice it's like the conclusion we did not get from this yeah. Um, yeah. it's what we deserve it's what we deserve but you know like in the the last three panels you see um you know human torches he's like searching the ship frantically for iceman you know he's looking for bobby and he says i've searched the whole ship doors looks like the iceman just vanished and he's like too bad he and the rest of the x-men zealously guard their identities He's one fella. I'd sure like to get to know a lot better. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, um, and that and now she, you know Doris is also intrigued. But you know, talk, you know, there's interesting potential in that storyline as well. You know, um, but but you know, there's this sort of frantic. He's looking for him. He can't find him. He wants to get to know him better. Um, 
unresolved. So you've given us the ending that we deserve instead of this kind of poignant where nobody is really happy with who they're with, you know? We also and who, are, who amongst us hasn't, you know, didn't have that experience, that crush that you remember so vividly that you were so fixated on and, you know, your eyes were just on them. That, you know, that's a thing. We also get a delicious 60s villain end for Captain Barracuda. They're losing. So he grabs Doris with a gun, jumps on a speedboat to escape. And he's like, ha ha ha, I've defeated you. And then he crashes into an iceberg. And he's, <laughs> he's out. <laughs> well, what, doesn't he say something like, what just happened? You know, like, you know, he, he's, oh wait, she, I guess Doris said that. You know, he's like, what's going on here, Barracuda? This can't be. Am I, am I going mad? What, he, he got the girl wait come back don't leave me here alone you know like, yeah it, it's it's so funny he's so incredulous that you know that there would be an iceberg which i get except you were battling with Iceman, so it shouldn't be um that surprising yeah this man is not known his for his brains that's why he's got to get big guns yeah well, whatever whatever like illusions or similarities exist to like the story of the titanic was prescient like this was ahead of its time in that having elements of the Titanic in this story is about as queer as it gets. So that's true. Yeah. And, and we, we get 60s Stan obviously here and it just, he's trying to have fun. And these, that's, that's the story he's trying to tell. Let's, let's tell an action story that will make people smile a lot, but there's so much queer subtext that's unintentional. It's really, it's really quite jarring. Uh, the, the idea of the uh, characters coexisting also was a really big deal back then. The Fantastic Four and the X-Men were different magazines, but they're in the same playground. They're in the same universe. So you get to see two heroes mixed together which is really, which is really fun. I also, uh, I also really, really love the continuity of all this, trying to fit it in, right? So the, the X-Men will next meet the Fantastic Four at the wedding of Reed and Sue, which we reviewed that with uh, Jim Zub in the wedding issue, Fantastic Four Annual Number 3. And then Heather, you were with me when we reviewed the Human Torch's guest appearance, helping the X-Men fight the Juggernaut uh, when Professor X mind-wiped the Human Torch and brought him to the school. Uh, so we get to see these characters cross over a few times. Um, uh, there's a lot that's really just fun in this issue overall, but I love that we can analyze it and find the subtext and look for the rest. Uh, Susan, because you are uh, writing about women a lot, we don't see a lot of women representation here, but what did you think of the representation we got with Sue Storm briefly, Marvel Girl briefly, and then uh, of course, Dory, who's kind of our star player this week. Yeah, I, I would definitely give her star status. Um, you know, maybe we should just write about the story of the gloves. She begins with the gloves in a moment <laughs> of distress. When she's hauled away, she loses the gloves. But by the ending, she's all back together, right? <laughs> she's all 100% the winner, right? Uh, but, you know, they do not get a lot to do um, in this particular, um, you know, issue, um, which is, uh, you know, frustrating, you know, when you're reading it, you're like, oh, but it's not, it, 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 admittedly, it's not her story. It's the story of Human Torch right. and Iceman's first meeting. And you can argue about whether it's successful and its absurdity, but I think for me, it's successful in, it makes me want to see more of those two characters interacting. Um, but in terms of like, you know, female representation, um, you know, I, I want to learn more about Doris. And again, it's also about reading into it what you want to see. I'm like, I am intrigued by her because that she has sass, you know, 
flirt with me now rescue me yeah yeah she's sassy i want to learn more about her i i get more than i need to know about sue storm in that one panel and okay i mean i think i'm just going to have to like photoshop this and make you know the the word bubble all white and just make that a gift for all of us because if you zoom in on it it almost looks like just ready for a meme of sue storm calling the police and she sounds like just such a white woman when they're talking about these you know far out mutants and she's like i'd like to meet all of them i think they're simply fascinating like which is nice and i'm sure the sentiment was nice but it's just easy to read into that and seeing that as like oh the 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 queers down the street oh they're fascinating or whatever right the mixed race couple ooh they're neat like there's just something so that about sue storm I only know this because I researched Dory for that that uh, that website I talked about before. But she appears in the Fantastic Four and Strange Tales quite a bit. She's in Spider Man a little bit back in the day. She disappears after Fantastic Four number fifty, which is in nineteen sixty six, and doesn't show back up until nineteen seventy three, which is Fantastic Four number one thirty four. And there's uh, Human Torch is just wondering about her, like, hmm, I wonder whatever happened to Dory. And he takes some flowers over to her house and he knocks on the door. And she's married with kids. And he's like, ah, oh, damn it. And he kind of walks away. So she's appeared in the comics a few times since then, but she is very underutilized and I love her. <laughs> um, what a delight to sit down with passionate, educated, talented people who are just willing to nerd out about 60s comics with me. This is, uh, this is a lot of fun. Uh, Susan, we had uh, Jessica Baldanzi uh, on with our, our women episode, and she commented afterward, like, that was the nerdiest thing I've ever done. And I had a blast. <laughs> I hope you feel the same. <laughs> um, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It was uh, so much fun. Uh, tell us uh, what you have coming out next or where people can find your works. What other books could we look for that you've done? Uh, and then also, where can people find you online if they'd like to connect with you? Well, I... Um... My first book was about Linda Berry. So, um, you know, what more can I say? Um, we, you know, we I, talked about last week as well. Yeah, she's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, Linda Berry, uh, when I was starting out as a comic scholar, I was trying to find more information about Linda Berry. And I realized no one had written a book about her, a scholarly book about her work. And so um, I thought, oh, that's one thing I think that's exciting about being a comic scholar is there's so much, there's so many opportunities, so much hasn't been written about. So, um, I wrote a book about Linda Berry, um, and I think it really was intended as a beginning of a conversation and to provide history and context for um, her work. So I have a book about Linda Berry that came out a few years ago, and I also um, co-edited an anthology on comics pedagogy because I'm very passionate about using comics in schools and um, uh, in education. So I um, edited and co-edited an anthology talking about different approaches to using comics in classrooms because it's very, I, I feel like there's so many opportunities um, to use comics. And I think it's really important too, as well, because I think, you know, different students think in different ways. Some are visual learners. And so allowing students the opportunity to create and read comics, I think has the potential to be really transformative. Uh, so I have a book on comics pedagogy, my most recent book, as you, you know, we talked about that about um, typical girls. And then um, I'm always working on new projects, working on, um, these won't be out for a few years though, but I'm working on a project with Charles Hatfield and Craig Fisher, a book on um, Jack Kirby. 
um, which, you know, you got to love Jack Kirby. We're talking about him today. And um, and another project um, that I'm working on, on Ms. Marvel. And by that, I mean the character, um, both in all of her incarnations, Carol Danvers and, and the Kamala Khan and 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 the, there's been a few other people who have yeah, don't forget don't forget Sharon Ventura. And I was gonna say there's a couple other people who have also taken on that mantle. So I'm working on a project uh, on on her. So I again I feel like I have one of the best jobs in the world because I get to read comics, think about them, talk about them with interesting people, as we've done today, which is an absolute pleasure. You can find me um, my information um, at Portland State, and you can email me. I am something of a hermit and a, and a Luddite. And so I'm not on social media. I feel guilty about it, but I'm just like a hermit. Um, and, and so, um, but I'm happy to um, join conversations and people can email me. And I love talking comics, so I'm happy to do that. So yes, that's kind of what I'm working on, where you can find me. And thank you so much for inviting me to chat today. I think you are fantastic. And I'm really excited to read the rest of your work. So thank you, not only for the work you're doing and what you're teaching, but for being willing to just nerd out with us today. This was this was delightful. Uh, Arturo and Heather, where can people find you guys online? And uh, Arturo, feel free to plug what you have coming out on your podcast as well. Um, well, first, uh, I also want to thank you, Susan, for what you're doing. I, I feel so fortunate that comics came into my life when I was young and, and you know, we, we were talking earlier about like Neil Gaiman and that was for me such transformative work and such like, no, this isn't just like what we were just read, you know, fire and ice powers and haha, you know, it was like mythology and beliefs and identity and reality and just such heady topics. And the idea of you being a teacher like that is that, that that's not just people happening onto the stuff that you're you're like a gateway for this for people is just amazing so thank you for that my mom's a teacher so i have nothing but love for teachers uh you guys are the best and the most underappreciated resource we have so thank you um me uh i'm arturo you can find me at mr toy box uh i am on you know on twitter and instagram um, I am a co-host over at X's for Podcasts, uh, where I have the good fortune of connecting with nerds every week and talking about different uh, different comics that, that are ongoing. Most of my beat is X Men, but we have um, you know pretty much everything of Marvel at this point, so that's really fun. And uh, and then sometimes you can find me bouncing around the the X Twitter circuit. Uh, so I'm happy when I'm here hanging out with Chad and Heather, and it's always a good time. So thank you for having me. Thank you for coming back. Uh, Heather, where can people find you? Uh, I am on Instagram and Twitter at Heather underscore Beth underscore. It's not always super exciting, but we have some fun. <laughs> and then I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can interact with me very easily through Gray Malkin Lane and Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter. Uh, we have some really amazing stuff coming up. I know I keep saying this, but we've, we're booked out for like the next 30 weeks It's or 30 episodes. It's amazing. And the lineup of people we have and the people who are excited to come on the pod, I, uh, I'm just honored. Next week, uh, or our next episode, we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 34, uh, which is called, I believe, Trapped in a World of Darkness, uh, <laughs> featuring uh, the writer Steve Orlando, who has just taken over the Marauders book uh, and who has been a 
uh, iconic and legendary queer writer of queer characters for quite some time. And then we've also got uh, Connor Goldsmith from Cerebrocast coming on. So we're going to have uh, a lot to talk about, and it's a really fun issue. And there's some fantastic four villains in it, so we get to talk more about uh, some crazy uh, old continuity. So uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Arturo. Thank you, Heather. Uh, we will see you guys back next time on Grand Malton Night.